Amen. I'll invite you to turn your Bibles to Romans chapter 9. Um, we've been going through the book of Romans. Well, we, we call it ch- verse by verse, but it's really chapter by chapter. Um, and up to this point, Paul has uh, identified uh, what it means to be saved by grace. He identifies what it means to be um, a part of the family of God, to receive Jesus as your Lord and Savior. And also he's identified briefly, he's not through with the subject, but he's identified briefly how to live in the power of the Holy Spirit. Uh, the first eight chapters really have to do with uh, the condition of mankind and uh, salvation, how salvation comes, and then who we are in Christ. But chapters 9, 10, and 11, Paul takes a break from talking about who we are in Christ to talk about how God is dealing with Israel, or how God has, has dealt and will deal with, uh, with Israel. It, uh, it doesn't pertain to us in the sense that it gives us information about ourselves and our place with God, but it does tell us about God's uh, plan for mankind and certainly his plan for Israel. Chapter 9 is really all about the sovereignty of God. Paul uh, starts talking about how God deals with Israel by talking about the sovereignty of God. Now, there's, uh, there's different schools of thought in uh, the body of Christ, the church world at large, and uh, the, uh, I think the predominant one, I would guess the, the majority opinion or majority viewpoint, is, uh, is the idea that God is sovereign, and by that, the church usually defines that by uh, describing that since God is sovereign, whatever God wants to happen is going to happen. And we don't know why things happen the way that, we do, that they do in many cases, but God's sovereignty is overall, and we're supposed to accept God's sovereignty, even if his sovereignty makes uh, some other scriptures confusing. Uh, I say it this way, and I, I don't mean it in a derogatory way, but it's it's the easy, easiest way for me to get a clear picture of what a lot of people think that God's doing, and that is many people think that because God's sovereign, he's picking winners and losers. Well, if God's picking winners and losers, then he is a respect of persons. And the Bible says clearly that he is not a respecter of persons. So how do you reconcile these things? Well, chapter 9 of Romans is a um, set of scriptures that the sovereignty of God, folks, meaning God picking winners and losers, hang their hats on. The other school of thought is that man has a free will and choice. God is certainly sovereign, but he has sovereignly set certain principles in motion, and he gives a man the, the choice, the free will and choice, to enter into those things and enter into the principles, uh, participate in the principles that he set up, and therefore, therefore receive the things that he's made available to, to mankind. Paul is going to have to talk about these things in chapter 9 because he's dealing with um, a Roman audience, I mean a, a Jewish audience. He's writing to the Romans. We don't know how many Jews are there, but every place that we have record of in the book of Acts that Paul went to, there was a, a large, uh, well, I don't know if large is the right way to say it. Let's say significant uh, Jewish population because the Jews stirred up trouble against Paul everywhere that he went. Now, why is that? I mean, were the Jews just so devil-possessed that you know, they were the ones that, uh, that Satan handpicked to, to come against Paul. There has to be more to it than that. It's not that the Jews were bad people, but what Paul was preaching, which was salvation by grace to all nations through the finished work of Jesus, turned upside down the Jewish history and the Jewish custom and everything they knew about Judaism. And that's what Paul is going to talk about in chapter 9. And before I read in chapter 9 of of Romans, Paul is, uh, just to kind of give you an idea, Paul is just finished in chapter 8 talking about the power of the Holy Ghost, nothing being able to separate us from the love of Jesus and so forth. And then he's going to immediately start talking about the Jews. Why does he do that? Why doesn't Paul finish? Why, why, doesn't, chapter, why doesn't, the, doesn't the book of Romans go from chapter 8 to chapter 12? And then after chapter 12, then talk about the, 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 the Jews, how God deals with Israel. Why is it the way that it is? It's got to be for a reason. I don't believe that the Holy Ghost is disorganized. Do you? Well, if the Holy Ghost impro- uh, impressed or prompted Paul to do it this way, there has to be a reason why. What is that reason? Well, I, I have to take a guess here. I mean, the Bible doesn't describe it, but I have to take a guess here. And that is the Jewish population worldwide at the time of Paul's ministry, 
had reported several things that we have record of in Paul's different letters to the, to the churches. Some of the things Paul addresses in his letters to the churches, both uh, uh, the Romans, the, the Corinthians, uh, the Galatians certainly, the, uh, the, I said the Corinthians, uh, the Colossians, for example. Each one of those, Paul identifies something to the effect of, and I'm paraphrasing, I know what people are saying about me. And then he addresses whatever they have reported about him and, and whatever wrong things that people were identifying about him. And then he tells the truth according to what the Holy Ghost gives him to say about how God operates and who we are in Christ and so forth. This is a recurring theme in Paul's ministry. Now, we've talked before that Paul has never been to Rome. He says specifically, I wanted to come to you, but I've never been there. This is the only church that we have record of that Paul writes a letter to before he went there. It's the only church we have record of that Paul wrote a letter to that he didn't start. I think there's a great advantage to that. I think that's significant in several ways. For one thing, the book of Romans gives us Paul's doctrinal um, pattern of teaching that none of the other letters give us. I have to assume that's because he did that teaching when he was there in person at the other, le- at the other cities, in the other churches. But because he hadn't been to Rome, he wanted to cover all the bases from A to Z, and so he gives us the most complete doctrinal thesis or outline of his gospel or that revelation he'd received from Jesus of anything that we have record of. Thank God Paul never went to Rome. Or at least that he didn't go to Rome before he wrote the letter. There'd be a lot of gaps in our understanding about who we are in Christ if we didn't have the book of Romans in the doctrinal form that it is. So Paul certainly knows what the Jews beef with his with him and his ministry is about. And that's why he immediately... Uh, Well, immediately. That's why he interrupts himself or seems to interrupt himself from talking about the power of the Holy Spirit within to talk about how God deals with Israel because he knows what the problem is. He knows that the Jews are reporting that Paul is just a disgruntled Jew and therefore he's he's, uh, made himself an apostate, turned against his own people, turned against the Jewish people, the Jewish nation because he wants to gain approval from the Gentiles for some financial gain or some other purpose. And that's why Paul talked about things over and over again. He said, if I was looking for popularity, I wouldn't be preaching what I'm preaching. Well, why would he bring that up? Because people are accusing him of doing it to gain popularity with others, with the Gentiles. And so Paul starts talking about some things that set aside the Jewish arguments. And in the process, he talks about God's plan for Israel. Now, before I get into, um, um, before I get into chapter 9 of Romans, I'm going to read you a couple of scriptures from the Old Testament that talk about what God has done for Israel as a nation. In other words, this is what the, the Jewish attitude is going to be, or the attitude of the Jews that are, that are hearing the reading of Paul's letter to the church at Rome. This is Psalm 147, verses 19 and 20. He showeth his word unto Jacob, his statutes and his judgments unto Israel. He has not dealt so with any nation, meaning any other nation, And as for judgments, they, the other nations, have not known them. Praise ye the Lord. Moses said in Deuteronomy chapter 4, verses 32 through 34, he said, For ask now of the days that are past. In other words, he's telling Israel, remind uh, yourself. And this is uh, after the 40 years in the wilderness or close to the end of the 40 years in the wilderness. So he's saying, remember 40 years ago. Now, for ask now of the days that are past, which were before thee, since the day that God created man upon the earth, and ask from the one side of heaven unto the other, whether there has been any such thing as this great thing is, or has been heard like it. Did ever people hear hear the voice of God speaking out of the midst of the fire as you have heard and live? Or has God essayed, attempted, to go and take him a nation from the midst of another nation by temptations and by signs and by wonders and by war and by a mighty hand and by a stretched out arm and by great terrors according to all that the Lord your God did for you in Egypt before your eyes? Do you see the point? Israel has had ingrained in them for hundreds of years, hundreds of years, that they and only they are God's chosen people. Paul's preaching sets that aside. Paul's preaching undermines the very foundation of a national identity with God that Israel has had since God made a covenant with Abraham. 
And as a result, all kinds of ideas and opinions and thoughts about what Paul is doing and why he's doing it have arisen. And all Paul's doing is trying to tell people, here's how to get saved and here's how to live in the power of God. But everywhere he went, he was persecuted for his message. And it was because his message set aside the national identity of Israel. So chapter 9 of Romans. Paul's just finished telling us how to live in the power of the Holy Ghost and nothing can separate us from the love of Christ. I say the truth in Christ, I lie not, my conscience also bearing me witness in the Holy Ghost that I have great heaviness and continual sorrow in my heart. For I could wish that myself were accursed from Christ for my brethren, my kinsmen as according to the flesh. Now who are the kinsmen he's talking about? He's talking about Israel. Now, this is significant because Paul, in the middle of talking about who we are in Christ, then starts talking about Israel, and he says, Now, you need to understand something. I live in a continual state of sadness and grief about Israel. So much so because they've rejected this message, the only message of salvation that counts. The only way to God is through Jesus. And because my kinsmen, the Israelites, have rejected that message, I know that there is no hope for those that reject it. I know that they've given up the very thing that God gave Israel, the law and all the other historical precedents and everything else involved in their national identity for, to lead them to himself. And now they've rejected it. And so much so, I mean this so sincerely, I'm so serious about this, that I would give up my own salvation if Israel could be saved. Now what's it going to take for Israel to get saved? Same thing it took for you to get saved, except Jesus. But Israel, in Paul's day, certainly, and I guess the same thing is true to a certain degree today, but certainly in Paul's day, Israel had a national identity that was unlike anything and everything else in the world. I don't hear too many Jewish people calling Gentiles dogs nowadays. How about you? I don't think that would go over so well as it might have, as it apparently did in the days of the gospel and the days of the early, the early days of the church. But that's the way the rest of the world was known. There were two classes of people, God's people and dogs. Now, I don't know, it's just me, human thinking. As a Gentile, I don't think I would have appreciated that. And you can well understand, since this was a public means and a manner of operation, how there was persecution against the Jews from the the beginning of time. But the Jews didn't care because they had a national identity. That national identity was, we've got a covenant with God. God's the one that delivered us from Egypt. God's the one that sent the plagues on Pharaoh. And everybody knows about it. God's the one that showed us the temple and the tabernacle. He's the one that appeared in the pillar of fire and the the pillar of cloud. It's us, not you, that he's delivered time after time after time. Yeah, we've messed up, but every time we turn back to him, look at what he's done. That kind of gives you a little bit of a swagger, wouldn't you think? But now Paul is saying, I understand where Israel is coming from. Paul's world was turned upside down on the road to Damascus. Whatever he thought about Judaism, about the law of Moses, whatever he thought about temple worship and all that kind of stuff, everything was turned upside down for him. Everything everything he thought about Israel's national identity was set on its ear when Jesus knocked him to the ground by the power of the, the glory of that light and said, Saul, Saul, why persecutest thou me? Everything changed for him. Everything. Now, folks, Please understand, if God knocked every Jew to the, to the ground today and called out with the same voice, not everybody would get saved. You realize that, don't you? Paul was in position to receive what was happening because he sincerely wanted the things of God. He sincerely thought he was fighting on God's side against the church. He sincerely thought that the message of salvation through Jesus, the sacrifice and the resurrection of Jesus, was wrong doctrine. What did he find out? So now he says, 
I wish I could give up my salvation. This is how serious this is for me. I would be willing to give up my own salvation for Israel to get saved, for Israel to realize that everything has changed now and it's through Jesus and him alone. Now, folks, this is significant because you may remember in Exodus chapter 33. In the 33rd chapter of Exodus, the children of Israel are doing some stupid things and have turned against God and and so forth. And God tells Moses, stand out of the way. Because my wrath is waxed hot, I'm going to destroy these people and start over with you. And Moses says, you can't do that. Moses, talking face-to-face with God, says, no, you can't do that. Because then all your enemies will say, you just brought us out here in the wilderness to kill us. He says, even before he goes up to the mountain to talk to God, he says to Israel, because of their sin, he says, I'm going to plead with God to see if I can make an atonement with you. And that's what he does. He pleads with God to make an atonement. And Moses says, if you're going to destroy them, this is part of that that meeting, talking with God face to face at that same time. He says to God, if you're going to block them out, or if you're going to destroy them, then block my name out of your book too. So whether they know it or not, we don't know what the readers know. We don't know what they understand. Not everybody was was skilled in the law and and so forth. And remember Moses, um, uh, what's his name? Paul. Remember, Paul had the same training as a rabbi, or as a high priest, I should say. He was trained as a rabbi, and as a result, he had to memorize what we know of as the Old Testament. He's got it memorized. He's committed it to memory. Not everybody had that kind of training. So not everybody is going to be aware of what Paul is doing. But Paul is saying, I'm taking the same position with my message the mediator and the deliverer of the, of the gospel of Jesus Christ that Moses took with the delivering of the law. I'd be willing to give up my salvation if Israel could be saved. Now he's going to talk about where Israel got its national identity. Verse 4, who are Israelites? These are my kinsmen according to the flesh. Who are the Israelites? To whom pertaineth the adoption and the glory. Now, notice what he's going to do. He's going to mention certain things that Israel knows about themselves and about their nation that gives them something to boast against the rest of the world with. He said the first thing that they've been given is the national adoption. That goes back to some of the scriptures that we read. There is no other nation, no other people that God has ever called his own except the seed of Abraham. It's the only geographic or ethnic group that God ever singled out And said, you're mine. Now, all nations are his through Jesus. So the first thing he mentions is, I know your heritage. I know God picked you. I know God chose you. And this may be one of the things that's a stumbling block for you. Is the adoption and the glory. What about the glory? Remember God appeared in the cloud. The pillar of fire in the cloud when Pharaoh was chasing out after Israel. At the edge of the Red Sea. Remember also that was the glory cloud that covered the tabernacle when they made the sacrifices and and filled the temple when Solomon dedicated it. No other nation had that. No other nation had had any kind of access to that. There was never the glory of God that appeared to any other people. This is part of what Israel was proud about as a nation, as a people. They also had the covenants. What covenants? Well, they had a covenant through Abraham in Genesis chapter 15 that was uh, when he was given the sign of circumcision. It was also a covenant that was ratified in chapter 22 of Genesis. They're the only ones that have covenants. They're the only ones that have promises from God. The covenants and the giving of the law, they've been made the caretakers of the law of Moses. No other nation had those. No other na- they didn't pertain to any other nation. It wouldn't matter if other nations tried to keep them. It, wasn't, it didn't belong to them. And the service of God, that's the temple worship. It's only the Jews that were responsible for the maintaining of the temple. No other temple had any presence of any kind of God or any kind of being except Israel. Now, people worship false gods and so forth, but remember even in the, the temple of Dagon in one place, the, um, uh, the statue of Dagon, this giant statue of Dagon fell down before the Ark of the Covenant. Everybody knew, all the nations of the earth at that time and throughout history have known that Israel had a living and present God. Next thing it says is, and the promises. Well, what promises to have? Promises of blessing. Obey me and I'll bless everything that you do. Obey me and no enemy shall stand against you. 
You'll conquer your enemies. You'll take every place that your foot treads upon and so forth. No other nation had that. And every other nation had respect unto unto Israel when they were walking with God. It was a rare thing for anybody to rise up against Israel until, unless they knew that Israel was walking in disobedience. Then it was free game. It also says, whose are the fathers? Meaning Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. You've got a lineage nobody else has. And then finally it says, and, as of, and, uh, and of whom, as concerning the flesh, Christ came. He said another mark that Israel has going for it is that Israel is the national line of, it, of Jesus. When God sent his own son to the earth, he picked Israel because Israel was his people. Now notice what it says of Jesus. As of whom, as concerning the flesh, Christ came, who, two things, is overall. The Bible says that God has raised Jesus and put all things under his feet. Jesus is overall. Now notice this next phrase. And God blessed forever. Jesus is overall and God blessed forever. Jesus is overall, meaning over all things. Every other name that's named. And he's God blessed forever. Now let me ask you a question. What do you think that counts for? The two things that are identified about Jesus. That he's overall. He's given a place, he's given a position over any and everything else that there is. We know that Paul writes to the church in another letter and says, Jesus has been given a name that's above every name. All things have been put under his feet. So what does overall mean? Is Jesus worried about somebody taking his spot? Is Jesus worried about losing his spot? Notice the next thing it says is that Jesus is God-blessed forever. What does that count for? Folks, I think it counts for a lot. Now, I would submit to you that the Bible says the same, thing, the same two things about you. Because in Christ, you're his body. He's the head, you're the body. You're over all things too in his name. And in him, you are God-blessed forever. Well, when, if we give credibility to what it should mean for Jesus in his position... Why don't we give the same credibility to what it means for us? You might want to think about that. Whatever problem is coming against you, you're over it. Whatever the devil's trying to raise up against you, you're God blessed forever. Amen. To finish verse 5. Not as though the word of God has taken none effect... For they are not all Israel which are of Israel. Now this is a, a confusing scripture to some. But Paul is making a distinction between natural Israel. And those that are the, the part of the family of God. By making Jesus the Lord of, his li- of their lives. In other words Paul is saying very simply. Very clearly. That Israel. The national identity of Israel has been turned upside down. Because now Israel is not just the nation. Israel is comprised of those who have made Jesus the Lord of their lives. He's going, he's going to bring things back around to who we are in Christ and how we get there. It's not through national birth. It's not through physical birth. It's through a spiritual rebirth. Not all Israel is Israel. Well, who is Israel? In other words, to whom do the promises of Israel belong now? Who is the seed of Abraham now? Them that are Christ. Paul says to the Galatians. And you are Christ. And if you're Christ. Then you're Abraham's seed. And heirs according to the promise. Well what if we're not. Jews. Doesn't have anything to do with it anymore. Because when Jesus came. He made. Of all nations. One blood. What blood is that? His blood. That's why in Christ. There's neither Jew nor Greek. There's no distinction between Jew and Gentile anymore. Now, does that mean God doesn't have a plan for national Israel, the nation of Israel? He does, and Paul's going to speak to that. But God's plan for the nation of Israel has nothing to do with his family. Unless the nation of Israel becomes part of the family of God. That's why I've said, and and, and people get upset about this, people that... Uh, have the idea that we're supposed to love Israel and we're supposed to put Israel first no matter what and all that kind of stuff because the Old Testament says uh, God said I'll bless those that bless you and curse those that curse you a lot of people think that's still in effect 
That was in effect when the nation of Israel were God's people. The nation of Israel are not God's people anymore. Christians are God's people. So in that sense, Israel has no other promise than the, than the rest of the world does, and that is come to God through Jesus. So Israel is really without covenant toward God. That's not, in, that's not technically correct because technically they have the same covenant rights and the same covenant uh, opportunities that everybody does, Jew and Gentile alike. So Israel has a covenant, but it's only through Jesus. So Paul goes on to say, neither are they of the seed of Abraham... Verse 7, are they all children? But in Isaac thy seed shall be called. That is, they which are of the children of the flesh, these are not the children of God, but the children of the promise are counted for his seed. For this is the word of promise, at this time will I come and Sarah shall have a son. And not only this, but when Rebekah also had conceived by one, even by her father Isaac, for the children being not yet born, neither having done any good or evil, that the purpose of God according to election, 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 might stand boy election turns a lot of people in the church world up just crazy because again they're thinking god picks winners and losers according to the to election might stand i'm sorry let me back up for the children being not yet born meaning jacob and esau neither having done any good or evil that the purpose of god according to election might stand not of works but of him that calleth it was said unto her the elder shall serve the younger it is written, Jacob have I loved, but Esau have I hated. Now, Paul, from uh, verse 7 down through verse 13, Paul is trying to make a point. He uses two examples to make a point. The point is, not all Israel is Israel. So he gives two examples of, of, of things that they know about that should explain this. What he's saying, and remember, he's writing this to Jews. The Gentiles don't, uh, do they really care? Do the Gentiles really care about God and, and the Israel and God's, uh, Israel's place with God and how it's all going to work together? I never have cared much about that. I mean, I, I'm, it's good for me to know, I guess, but my salvation doesn't, doesn't hang on it. So I'd rather know who I am in Christ. Do you understand what I mean by that? I hope nobody takes me wrong on that because I, I don't have an attitude against Israel. I'm for Israel and everything that I can be for them. It doesn't mean I can be for them in everything. For example, I'm not for a lot of the Israel, uh, Israeli leaders' idea for the two-state solution in Palestine. I'm not for that at all because God said it all belongs to Israel. So in that sense, I'm more Israelite than they are, if you know what I mean. So Paul uses two examples. The first example he uses is Isaac and Ishmael. He says there were two sons. Abraham had two sons, but only one was the child of promise. One was the child of the flesh. The other was the child of promise. In other words, he's saying there was one spiritual seed and one, one natural seed. Ishmael was the natural seed. He was born of Abraham just as much as, as Isaac was. But the promise was made to Isaac because he was the one that came as a result of the promise. Now, what is, what's the difference between Isaac's birth and Ishmael's birth? One was trying to help God out, and the other was an operation of faith. That's going to be key to everything Paul says about this chapter. Because salvation is by faith, not by being national Israel. Isaac's birth was a product of faith, and Abraham became the example, the father of faith in Isaac's birth. So he says, just like Abraham had two sons, but not both sons weren't treated equally. God didn't treat both sons equally. Abraham didn't treat both sons equally. Why? Because one was a child of the flesh and the other was a child of promise. One was from God and the other was just a work of the flesh. Now, folks, th the reason this is key is because this is the difference between the church and national Israel. Israel, meaning Israel in Paul's day, was trying to get to God through the keeping of the law, which they couldn't do. But it was a work of the flesh. And they were rejecting faith in Jesus to hold on to a work of the flesh that couldn't get them anywhere. They were choosing to be Ishmael in this example. Are you with me? That's why Paul uses this example. 
there were two children. One was of the, the flesh. The other was of the, the, the promise. And then he says, the word of promise, verse 9, at this time will I come and Sarah shall have a son, meaning it was the operation of faith that brought it about. He knows that all the Jews that are reading or hearing this letter being read understand about Abraham and Abraham's faith. That was, their, that was one of their big claims to fame, so to speak. We're children of Abraham. Well, then remember what Abraham did. And then he says, not only this, but when Rebekah had also conceived by one, even our father Isaac, she had two sons, the twins, Jacob and Esau. God said that one of the children would serve the, the, the elder child, eldest son would serve the younger one. Esau would serve Jacob. Now, somebody once said, and, and this is the sovereignty of God idea. Well, God picked winners and losers there, didn't he? God picked Jacob over Esau. Well, why did God pick Jacob over Esau? Was it just something he just pulled out uh, a number out of the hat and said, well, number one is out, number two is in? Is that what it was? What do we know about Esau? Esau's attitude toward God was not the same as Jacob's. Jacob had respect under the promise, the birthright that belonged to the eldest son. Esau sold Jacob his birthright for a pot of stew. Didn't he? Who made him do that? Did God make Esau do that? No, Esau did that on his own. Esau chose to do that. So if God sees down the road before it ever happens, God being infinite sees down the road and sees that somebody's heart is hardened toward the things of God and another has respect unto the things of God, he sees that that respect that the younger younger Jacob shows to the things of God and the birthright of his father is going to bring blessing into his life. So what does God do? God says before it ever happens, the elder will serve the younger. Is he making it happen? No. Is he picking and choosing who's going to do what? No. He's just saying, as the God of all time, he's saying, here's what's going to happen before it happens. Now, folks, if I, by the Holy Ghost, tell you what's going to happen tomorrow, I didn't make it happen. I just told you how it was going to be. Right? Right? Somebody said, I just don't understand how God could, could uh, uh, hate Esau. That's just not right. Folks, I've got to tell you something. The part I don't understand is how God could have loved Jacob. You read about that guy's life. There ain't much there to, to be in, uh, in favor of. Except one thing, and that is the promise that was given to his father and his grandfather. That's why the, the, the forefathers are spoken of as Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, not Abraham, Isaac, and Esau. Because he had respect in the promise that God made into his family. Esau did not. So where's the sovereignty of God? The sovereignty of God is in the establishment of principles. I'll bless those or honor those that honor me. And he did. And he does. Verse 14. He says, I know, what your, I know what your argument is. This is the same argument people make today. What shall we say then? Is there unrighteousness with God? God forbid. Was God unrighteous in choosing Isaac over Ishmael? Was God unrighteous in choosing Jacob over Esau? When both Isaac and, Ishmael, uh, Isaac and Jacob were the ones that honored the things of God. Was God wrong to use them because their heart was open to, to and had respect to the things of God and the promises of God? God forbid. For he said to Moses, I will have mercy upon whom I will have mercy. I will have compassion on whom I will have compassion. Now, a lot of people will use this. Sovereignty of God folks will use this and say, well, see, God is picking and choosing. Folks, I would submit something to you and bring something to your attention you're probably not aware of. This is the first time in the book of Romans we found the word, the word mercy. He's talked a lot about grace. He's talked a lot about faith. He's, talk, he's even talked about wrath. First time we see mercy. Now, what is, Moses, or what is Paul doing? Paul is referring back to the very time that Moses said to God, if you're going to destroy the people, then block me out of your book too. In Exodus 32 and 33. This is the very time that God says, I have pardoned according to your word. I will have mercy upon whom I will have mercy. 
I will have compassion upon whom I will have compassion. Now, here's the question. Who does God have mercy on? Who does God have compassion on? Everybody that receives him. In fact, God's mercy will even go beyond somebody's willingness to receive. The Bible says God is merciful to the just and the unjust. So God's not picking people to be merciful for. He's saying to Moses, since you stood in for them and made an atonement for them, I will be merciful upon them. I will have mercy. Who will he have mercy upon? Upon all those that have been atoned for, as we would say in the New Testament, redeemed. God's not picking and choosing. He's saying my mercy belongs to everybody. My compassion belongs to everybody. The two examples he used of people that didn't get compassion or mercy were Ishmael and Esau, and both of those, those, both of those individuals rejected the things of God. Are you still there? For he said to Moses, I will have mercy upon whom I will have mercy, and I will have compassion upon whom I will have compassion. So then, verse 16 is key when it comes to Israel. So then... It is not of him that willeth, nor of him that runneth, but God that showeth mercy. Now, if we're going to make sense out of this verse of Scripture, we're going to have to identify our terms, define what we're talking about here, where it says, so then it is not, it is, is added by the translators, but it's trying to, I think it was appropriate here. The only problem is it doesn't identify what it is. What does he mean? It is not of him that willeth, nor him that runneth, but of God that showeth mercy. The it that he's talking about is salvation. The it that he's talking about is the way to God. Israel's only knowledge about how to come to God is by keeping the law, which they can't do. So when Paul says, so it is, he's talking about the way to God. What we know of is salvation. He says, so it is not by two things. Either the will or the decision of man. Man can't just sit back and decide, I'm going to make a way to God. That doesn't work. He can try to keep the law all he wants to. He can even keep the God-ordained commandments of the old covenant. And it won't work. Because he can't keep them entirely. Man can't make his own way to God. And, And this is so prevalent in today's society. Because people have the idea, there are many, many paths to God. Really? Where'd you come up with that idea? Well, that's what's preached. Islam says it's one way. Christianity says it's another way. Buddhism says it's another way. Well, folks, not everybody can be right. Because Islam says that the Christian way is not right. Jesus said that everybody else's way is not right. So somebody's got to be right and somebody's got to be wrong on this. I don't care how tolerant or politically correct you want to be. Somebody's right and somebody's wrong. Whether you ever make a decision or not, which is really making a decision, but it's kind of by default. But it's just the way it is. So he says it is not of man's will. Man's not the one that decides how he comes to God or in what manner he's going to come to God. Now, that does not mean man does not have free will and choice. It does not mean that God is picking and choosing who will come to him or who will get saved. It means man, mankind as a whole, is not the one that decides how salvation comes. He's talking about the origin of salvation. Who decides that? God does. Why did he decide it? Why does it come through Jesus? Because God showed mercy. God didn't have to make a way of salvation at all. But if there is a way of salvation, thank God there is, it is one and only one way or comes from only one source, and that is from God, not man. Man can't make his own path toward God, but God made a path for him. So it's not according to man's will, it meaning salvation. Salvation, not the receiving of salvation, but the origin of salvation, is not because man decides or man runneth. The word runneth literally means hold out. I'll show you this. uh, I'll prove it to you in the next verse of Scripture. So it says it's not man that either holds out against God to get in or decides he's going to come up with his own way. Salvation comes from one and only one source, and that is God, because he showed mercy unto mankind. Now, here's the proof of that. The proof is in the next verse, verse 17. For even the scripture says unto Pharaoh, for the scripture saith unto Pharaoh, even for this same purpose have I raised thee up, that I might show my power in thee, and uh, that my name might be declared throughout all the earth. 
Therefore hath he mercy upon whom he will have mercy, and upon whom he will he hardeneth. Now again, this is the sovereignty of God in Scripture, because a lot of people will say, well, see, God's the one that picked and chose about Pharaoh. And God's using Pharaoh as an example. Some people's hearts he just hardens. Well, then how is it possible for it to be true what the Bible says in the New Testament that God would have all men to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth? If God would have all men to be saved, but he's hardening some people's hearts to keep them from being saved, then God is schizophrenic. At the very least, he's not trustworthy. You can't believe his word because he said that's not how it works. Jesus said, whosoever will, let him come. Yeah, but Pastor Mike, how can you deny? The scripture says God will harden those will he harden. Is that what it's saying? Is it saying, is it using Pharaoh as an example of somebody that God hardened his heart? Remember the story of Pharaoh? Moses goes to Pharaoh at the direction of God. God speaks to Moses out of the burning bush. Says, go to Pharaoh and tell him, let my people go. Moses says, I don't know who I'm, I don't know who I'm talking to. Who will I say sent me? And he says, say, I am that I am sent me. And he says, but... Pharaoh won't listen to you. He didn't say, I will make Pharaoh not listen to you. He said, Pharaoh won't hear you. He won't let you go. He'll only let you go by my hand when I show signs and wonders in mighty place. God told Moses this up front when he was still talking to him out of the burning bush. Moses should not have been surprised at anything that happened. In fact, we don't have record that he was. God said, this is the way it's going to be. So Moses goes in before Pharaoh. Pharaoh is sitting there and Moses said, Jehovah said... Let my people go. Do you remember Pharaoh's response? Pharaoh says, who is Jehovah that I should hearken unto him? What has Pharaoh done? Pharaoh has decided to reject the word of God. He has decided to reject the word of God. Now, folks, I would ask you a question. Is that not exactly what Ishmael did? Is that not exactly what Esau did? Is that not exactly what these two people did that... Paul just used as the example between children of the flesh and children of the promise. Natural works versus operation of faith. Is that not exactly the same thing? Paul is very simply saying this. He's saying Pharaoh refused to accept the things of God until. He refused to accept the word of God until mighty signs and wonders were shown upon him. Then he did. Then he let go of Israel. Now, why did Pharaoh reject God? Why did he reject the word of God? I I guess I'm naive about this, but in most cases, uh, meaning 99% out of 100, I would think that anybody that was convinced that they were hearing from God would want to pay attention to that because who thinks they're greater than God? How naive is that? Tons of people think they're greater than God. Tons of people. Why did Pharaoh reject the word that, that Moses gave him from the Lord? Because Pharaoh saw himself as a God. Now, folks, there's not a lot of people sitting on thrones in great palaces and so forth like Pharaoh did. But there's a lot of people that think themselves as a God in their own lives. There's a lot of people that won't listen to anything related to or pertaining to the word of God but the things of God because they've identified themselves as a God in their own lives. So what did Pharaoh do? Pharaoh says, who is Jehovah that I should hearken unto him? Do you know who you're talking to, Moses? I'm a God. I have no evidence, no reason to think that your God is greater than me. So no. So what did God do? God let Pharaoh, he dealt with Pharaoh and left Pharaoh in the condition that he found him. He changed his mind, but God never changed his heart. He changed his mind only by, uh, only by necessity through the plagues. Pharaoh finally came to the place where he realized my whole country is going to come apart at the seams if I don't let these people go. So he did. He did it out of political expediency, not because he had a change of heart. So that's what verse 18 is about. Therefore, he has mercy on whom he will have mercy and whom he will, he hardens. What does it mean, who he will, he hardens? See, a lot of people think that people are lost because they've hardened their hearts. They're not. People harden their hearts because they're lost. 
And there's only one way that overcomes, the only one thing that overcomes being lost, and that's the blood of Jesus, accepting the blood of Jesus. So Paul is very simply saying, is God unjust because he leaves people in the position that they choose to be in, like Pharaoh? But to remember the whole point, the point that Paul uses, the reason he brings up Pharaoh, is so that he could declare his name and his power among the heathen. First Samuel chapter 4 says, even hundreds of years later, First Samuel chapter 4, I think it's verses 7 and 8 and 9, somewhere around there, says that the Philistines said, these are the gods that brought the plagues on Egypt. Folks, whether you know it or not, the world heard about what God did in Egypt. Now, did, he, did the world hear about what God did in Egypt? Did God uh, magnify his name and his power and his greatness because Pharaoh was open to the things of God? God's intent was for Pharaoh to let the people go so that God would make a name for himself with his people. Pharaoh said, no, that's not going to happen. So what did God do? God made his name great and brought out his people. In other words, Pharaoh was not able to hold out against God. That goes back up into verse 16. It's not man that decides. Pharaoh thought he was in charge. But it's not man that decides his way to God or holds out against God. Just like Paul said. Therefore has he mercy upon whom he will have mercy and whom he will he hardens. Thou wilt say then unto me. Now here Paul's going to get on the other side of the argument. He's going to say, I know what your argument's going to be. I know what you're going to say when it comes down to the sovereignty of God, when it comes down to principles laid down by God. And remember, he's talking to the Jews. He's saying, I know what you Jews are going to say. We were God's chosen people. And now you're saying, Paul, that God has turned everything upside down. So I know what you're going to say, Paul says. Here's their argument. Why does he yet find fault? In other words, what's he against us for? For who has resisted his will? Now, here's, here's the way that the devil works, folks. The devil wants to, first of all, keep you out of the principles of God to keep you from receiving from him. And then secondly, he wants to make you feel sorry for yourself because it's tough to receive. So the argument has always been. It's the, it's the same then and it is now. The devil, If the devil can't get you to, to keep from trying to act in faith or act according to the principles of God, he'll get you in the middle of a pity party because you are standing in faith. Pastor Mike, it's just so hard. I'm sorry. Yeah, but, but you just don't understand how long it's been. I'm sorry. Would that help somehow? Yeah, but I, I just feel so weak. I'm sorry. Does be saying I'm sorry help any? But that's where people want to go. Well, I, I just don't understand why the Lord would let this go on this long. Folks, that's the argument that, that Paul is saying the Jews were making about salvation. It may, it may be a different level, but it's the same argument. The devil only has a couple of ways that he works against us, and this is one of the major things. If he can get you feeling sorry for yourself, he can keep you from standing strong in faith to receive whatever God has made available to you. Thou wilt say then unto me, why does he yet find fault? For who has resisted his will? Paul says, nay, but. In other words, here's a better question. The better question is, O man, who are thou, who art thou that repliest against God? Who are you to question God's principles? Pastor Mike, I just don't understand why we have to be strong in faith. I just don't understand why it takes so long. I just don't understand why it has to be so hard. Who are you to question the way God set things up? That always gets a big amen. Because that's what we do. We complain about how it goes. Well, why are we complaining about how God set it up? Why would we complain about God's method of salvation? See, we're not Jews. We're coming from the Gentile perspective. So God's method of salvation is great for us. We never had a law to deal with anyway. We have the natural tendency to try to make our way to God and, and do good things and all this kind of stuff, be pleasing unto God through the flesh, uh, like the Jews did according to the law. But we never had a law that we were bound to keep and, and or else. I never had to go sacrifice a lamb. Did you? So God's principle is great for us concerning salvation, but God's principle in receiving anything and everything of his blessings is the same as the principle of salvation that we thought was so great in receiving Jesus, and that is faith. So what are we complaining about the principle of faith for? 
It's the means that brought us into the family of God. That's what Paul says is a better question to ask. Rather than focusing on yourself and how hard things are and just not understanding why God's doing all these things to me and all the other stuff the devil tries to blame on God. He says a better question is, why are we questioning the way God set it up? God seems to be smart enough to handle his business in other areas. Why don't we just accept it and participate? Nay, but, oh, uh, nay, but, O oh man, who art thou that repliest against God? Shall the thing formed say to him that formed it, Why hast thou made me thus? Hath not the potter power over the clay of the same lumps to make one vessel unto honor and another unto dishonor? Now, he's using Old Testament uh, terminology that the Jews should recognize. Both Isaiah and Jeremiah prophesy about God being the potter and, and mankind being the clay. And he's talking about, in both cases, he's talking about Israel. So if they've been brought up in the synagogues, they should know this example. And he's going back to their own training, their own teaching. He said, do you not realize this is what it meant? This is what Isaiah and Jeremiah meant when they were talking about the potter and the clay? Now notice verse 22. He said, what if God, what if God, folks, he's going to tell you something about God that you probably never thought of. What if God, willing to show his wrath and to make his power known, endured with long-suffering the vessels of wrath fitted to destruction? Have you ever, well, I won't ask you. I'll just talk about me. The older I get, the more clearly I see things in light of God's plan and purpose for mankind. Politics didn't used to bother me. The condition of the country didn't used to bother me because I was on my uh, you know, I had my own plans about things and, 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 you know, just trying to get by. And I was what we call now the uninformed voter. I didn't keep up with stuff, didn't care. Politicians made a speech, didn't bother me one way or the other. But the older I get and the more I see the spiritual agenda behind things and the work of the devil behind things, I sometimes, it's everything I can do to keep from screaming at the TV set. I get so tired of hearing this president lie. I get so tired of hearing Nancy Pelosi lie and spin her stuff. I get so tired of Harry Reid telling his lies and all the, the, you know, other political leaders. And and I'm not saying these are even the worst three. I'm just using them for examples. I'm getting to where I feel about the same way about Boehner and McConnell. I'm pretty much decided that politicians just lie because they're politicians. A politician means liar. And and sometimes I I hear what they're saying and I think, how stupid do you think people are? And then I realize, oh, yeah, people really are stupid. And I wonder how in the world God puts up with all this stuff. Why does he not just start killing these people every time they step up to the microphone? If I was God, there'd be a whole lot better crop of people to pick from. Because everybody else would be crispy critters, if you know what I mean. Folks, I want you to realize what this verse is saying. Verse 22 says, God wants that even more than you do. What if God? What about God? Notice it says two things. It says that God is willing to show his wrath. Now, let me make a disclaimer right here. God doesn't want to destroy anybody. The Bible says God takes no pleasure in the death of the wicked. Jesus lamented over Jerusalem. He wept over Jerusalem and said, how many times would God have gathered you unto himself? But you wouldn't do it. Over and over again, the Bible, in Ezekiel 28, where it talks about Satan being spoken of as the king of Tyrus, who was in the Garden of, uh, Garden of Eden from the beginning and so forth. It says, son of man, it starts off in Ezekiel 28, verse 11, says this, son of man, take up a lamentation against the king of Tyrus. And then it describes the devil. Well, lamentation means sad song. God didn't take pleasure even in the devil rebelling. So I'm not saying God's looking to destroy people or God takes pleasure in destroying people. But God is willing to show his wrath upon sin. And he gives everybody the opportunity to separate themselves from that sin through the work of Jesus. So God is willing to show his wrath. So no matter how willing you and I might be for God to show himself strong and for God to to pour out his power and show this world what's what, God wants it more than you do. I take comfort in that. 
That makes me look forward to the end. What if God, willing to, number one, show his wrath, and number two, make his power known in the showing of his wrath? God's not just going to set people down. God is going to blast things big time. Do you see that? What if God, now remember the question is, who are you to question God? What if God is like this? And he is. What if God, willing to show his wrath and to make his power known, those are the two things he wants to do. He wants to destroy sin and he wants to do it in a, in a big show. Endured. What if God endured with much long suffering the vessels of wrath fitted for destruction? Why doesn't, if God's willing to show his wrath and make his power known, why didn't he do it? Because his long suffering overcomes his willingness to show his wrath and his power. Why is he long suffering? Because people who have fitted themselves, notice it doesn't say God fitted them for destruction. They fitted themselves for destruction and that destruction will come one day if they don't make amends and turn things around. But God endures with long suffering. Well, if he's long suffering about it, we should be too then. But that's the way it's going to be. Now notice the contrast. And verse 23, and that he might make known the riches of his glory into the vessels of mercy. Notice it doesn't speak anything about glory when it comes to showing his destruction and showing his power. Or showing his wrath and his power. But now he's talking about showing his glory to the vessels of mercy. That's us. That's the children of promise. That's those that have made Jesus the Lord of their lives. And that he might make known the riches of his glory on the vessels of mercy which he had afore, before, meaning predestined, in other words, prepared unto glory. What did God prepare vessels of mercy for? For the glory of God. Well, who are the vessels of mercy? The ones that make Jesus the Lord of their lives. Is God picking who they are? Yeah, but doesn't the Bible say God makes one vessel unto honor and another unto dishonor? That's where your choice comes in, not his. God's principle through his sovereign work is that some people will receive glory or enter into glory by receiving Jesus as the Lord of their lives. Other people that reject Jesus as the Lord of their lives will be fitted for destruction and they'll be worthy of whatever destruction comes. But is that God's choice? No, God's will is that all men be saved and come to the knowledge of the truth. That's where the will of man comes in. Even us, the vessels of mercy, even us whom he hath called, not of the Jews only, but also of the Gentiles. As he saith also in O.C., that means Hosea, the book of Hosea. Now he's going to quote some Old Testament scripture to the Jews. As he also says in Hosea, I will call them my people which were not my people and their beloved which was not beloved. In other words, he said, this is what Hosea meant. The Gentiles is who Hosea was prophesying about. When God says, I will call them a people who are not my people, not Israel. I will make a people out of people that are not Israel. And I will make my beloved out of those who are outside the seed of the natural seed of Abraham. And that's fulfilled with the Gentiles. And it shall come to pass that in the place where it was said unto them, you are not my people. There shall they be called the children of the living God. Old Testament scripture. He said, this is what that means. Now, folks, imagine... Uh, and this helps me understand God's choice of Paul with the training that Paul had and the ability to, to recite, literally recite the Old Testament. Can you imagine how the scriptures came alive once he realized who Jesus was and who we were in Christ? Can you realize or can you imagine? I'm sure we can't realize it. But can you imagine how the Old Testament scriptures just came popping up to him, how the Holy Ghost would bring one after another to him and saying, this is what that was talking about. This is what that meant. This is how that was fulfilled. And Paul is going, Wow, you got to be kidding. It was there all the time. Why didn't we see it? I'm sure Paul had some thoughts about how in the world am I going to preach to the Jews that being an Israelite doesn't mean anything anymore. What means something? The only thing that means something is to make Jesus the Lord of your life, accept his sacrifice as your own. How am I going to spread that word? And then these scriptures start coming. Well, it was prophesied. Hosea prophesied it. Isaiah prophesied it. Jeremiah prophesied it. Why didn't we see that? Because we were thinking in other terms. That's what he uses these Old Testament scriptures for. Then he goes to another one, verse 27. He said, Isaiah also cried concerning Israel through the number of the children of Israel, though the number of the children of Israel be as the sand of the sea, a remnant shall be saved. 
What's he saying? Not all Israel is Israel. Not all of Israel, not all of those that say that they're the natural children of Abraham are part of the family of God. But a remnant shall be saved. A remnant shall be saved. One translation says a seed shall be saved. This is what, remember what Paul starts with in chapter 9. He says, this is why I'm lamenting for Israel. There's only a remnant that's going to be saved. He's talking church age. He's talking about receiving Jesus as the Lord of of their lives. He's not talking about the millennium. He's not talking about tribulation. He's not talking about any of that stuff where God makes plans for the natural descendants of Abraham. He's talking about salvation. For he will finish the work and cut it short in righteousness. One translation says, uh, the American Standard Translation says, the Lord shall execute his work and cut it short in righteousness because a short work will the Lord make upon the earth. In other words, he's saying, time's running out for Israel. Now, what's going to cut the work short? Jesus coming back. And as Isaiah said before, except the Lord of Sabbath had left us a seed. There's a remnant. We had been as Sodom and had been like unto Gomorrah. In other words, he's saying that Israel, not ju- this doesn't just apply to Israel, but Israel is a picture or an example of all of mankind. And that is everybody apart from Jesus and his sacrifice, everybody is a vessel fitted for destruction. Everybody is. And except God made a plan, except God showed mercy by sending Jesus, everybody on the earth would be like Sodom and Gomorrah and worthy of the same destruction that came on them. What shall we say then? That the Gentiles which followed not after righteousness have attained to righteousness, even the righteousness which is of faith. But Israel, which followed after the law of righteousness, has not attained to the law of righteousness. Why? Wherefore? Why? Why did they not attain to it? Now, folks, realize that this is what Israel is seeing. Israel is seeing Paul say, accept the work of Jesus and become a new creature in him. And the Jews are standing there saying, well, wait a minute, wait a minute. What about the law of Moses? You're talking to the Gentiles. You're accepting the Gentiles into the family of God, giving them a place with God. And we're the ones that were God's people. And that's what Paul says. Here's the conclusion then. The Gentiles, which never have been looking for a way to God, they've been idol worshipers never have been looking away toward God, were the ones that readily received the preaching of Jesus, accepted the truth by faith, and they've attained unto the righteousness that Israel was trying to get by keeping the law, but because they couldn't, get, couldn't keep the law, never got it. Now, why is that? Verse 32, because they, meaning Israel, were trying to do it through the works of the flesh. They sought it not by faith, but as it were by the works of the law. For they stumbled at that stumbling stone. As it is written, Behold, I lay in Zion a stumbling stone and a rock of offense, and whosoever believeth on him shall not be ashamed. Folks, there's, uh, there's some truth that, that you need to be aware of. And I won't go through I'm over time, way over time, so I won't go through it in, in great detail. But you need to be aware of a couple of things. Jesus offended the Jews and their claims of being Abraham's seed. Jesus offended the Jews in their claim of righteousness according to the law. And, and the way that he did this is he showed them an example that they, wouldn't, they couldn't accept or refused to accept. He, claim, he just, uh, offended them in their claims of being children of Abraham by saying that God could raise up children of Abraham from the rocks of the earth. Jesus was a man of faith. They were trying to rely on their heritage and Jesus was saying that he was even greater than Abraham. And the Jews, who everything about them was Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob and the law of Moses, said, who does this guy think he is? He offended their claims of righteousness by being the Holy One of Israel, by living a righteous life. They couldn't trap him on any, tri- any, any fine points of the law. There was nothing that they could trip him up on. So here they are claiming to be righteous because they're Jews, the nation of Israel, and they couldn't keep the law and Jesus was exhibiting righteousness in front of them and showed that the hand of God was upon him, which would only mean he was righteous by doing miracles right and left. Jesus came saying, toss out everything you know and believe in me. And what they do, they reject him. 
So I want you to understand something that Paul identifies, first of all, when he talks about the sovereignty of God and God's plan for Israel. He does not say Israel was an idolatrous nation, so God overthrew them. He does not say Israel was disobedient, so God got rid of them. He does not say the Gentiles were better than the Jews, so God picked them instead. He said they simply accepted by faith. That's it. So whatever arguments you want to make, whatever complaints you want to register, it comes down to one and only one thing, and that is accepting by faith what Jesus has already done. Now in chapters 10 and 11, he's going to talk about God's plan for Israel in the future. Because that, the, the Jews are going to want to know, well, if we're giving up our place to accept Jesus, and that's it, it's not the law of Moses and Jesus, what is there for us? What good has it been for us to have been the people of God all these hundreds of years? He's going to deal with those things. But folks, it always comes down to one thing, and that is simple faith. Simple faith. Thank God it's simple. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for your word. Thank you that it's true. Thank you that we have the privilege simply believe your word thank you lord that heaven and earth shall pass away but your word will never fail therefore we take you at your word we declare that we are the righteousness of god in christ jesus we declare that we are new creatures in him we declare that the power of the holy ghost resides in us and puts us over in every aspect of life we're more than conquerors through him that loved us we say that the word of god is true for us in jesus precious name amen Amen. God bless you. Thank you for being with us.